Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the 15th encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Grittenden. What's up, Jack? What's up, Rory? Not much. <laughs> Survived Christmas. Really looking forward to New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes, I think that is both of our favorite holiday of yeah. the year. <laughs> yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah, big parties planned. <laughs> yeah, huge parties. Cool. So right before we started the intro here, you were talking a little bit about an epidemiologist uh, and some COVID related stuff. So let's, why don't we just pick up there? Sure. So I was mentioning to Rory that my two LA sons came home for Christmas, uh, which is of course the only present my wife and I really want, <clears throat> just have them in the house, mostly to keep an eye on them. But one of them, the youngest so we have three boys. All, they were all home for Christmas. The youngest uh, had hung out with some Arizona friends and heard later on that one of them had tested positive for COVID. But the youngest, our youngest son, has also had COVID twice and is fully vaccinated. So he's feeling pretty confident that he is going to remain immune. And I was telling Rory, there is a, a I'm going to use air quotes here, epidemiologist named Nicholas uh, Christakis who has really been studying COVID uh, in depth for the last couple of years. And his, he claims that the data show that the more severe your, if you've had COVID, the more severe your case, the greater your natural immunity. So if your case has been very mild, then you cannot use natural immunity as an excuse for not getting vaccinated. But if your case was severe, you're gonna have, um, you're going to have built up pretty good antibodies. Now, the question is, of course, how long does it last? And another ep epidemiologist uh, in LA County, who is a, a former roommate of one of my, of my, of our other son, LA son, oh, wow. argues that, I uh, said the data show, well, because it's so new, your immunity to COVID could last anywhere from five months, sorry, from six months to five years. Mm. Uh but I don't think that's a gamble you might want to take. Immunity from natural, uh, from having had it, you mean, from not from the vaccination? From having had it, yeah. Yeah. What they yeah. call, yeah, uh, NI versus VI, natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. But yeah, so you don't probably don't want to gamble. Although no. my brother, I talked to my brother yesterday, he's a California resident. Mm. And he heard an interview with Phil Mickelson, the professional golfer. <laughs> was encouraging it wasn't encouraging i shouldn't say it that way who was speculating that since omicron is so mild everybody should go out and get it right this is what people said at the beginning of the pandemic too some people yeah well except the, yes the the, but the the craziness is you cannot predict how even omicron will affect you right and you cannot predict what any any of the long-term 
effects might be. So it's it's a it's a bet, it's a gamble. <laughs> is it worth taking? I can't imagine that it is, but there's people arguing that's how we will eventually beat beat the disease. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about all that stuff too. Like, uh, I mean, even from mundane matters, like we were discussing earlier um, about like New Year's Eve parties, about whether or not I should go out here in New York City, et cetera, et cetera. It's like it's all just a bunch of it's just a probability game, right? Yeah. You know, every yeah. time you go out your door, basically. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just here. Omicron has swept through the city, you know, so quickly. Uh, over the past couple of weeks that I think, I don't know, even if it would be fairly likely be mild for me, it, if I caught it, you know, being relatively young, healthy, vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's the concern about possibly spreading it to other people and also just like the sort of knock on effect from hospitalizations rising, right? This is something right. that people don't talk about, I think, enough. Like it's talked about, but it, it should be centered, I think, more the way that, you know, if people get hospitalized for COVID, that that means that a bed is taken for somebody who needs treatment for something else. Right. Right. And uh, and so that's that's just one of my personal concerns that I try to keep in the front of my mind, even though I may not be affected that badly by it myself. The illness. No, you're, you know? you're right. That's that's uh, expressing a mature level of responsibility, <laughs> uh, which I really don't ever expect from you, but uh, <laughs> thank you. But that's, but that's good to hear. And you're right. One, one aspect of this we forget is that there are plenty of people now who are getting the Omicron variant who are experiencing scratchy throat, runny nose, maybe sore throat, maybe a fever, maybe some aches, and they're going to the hospital, right? They don't need to be hospitalized. But they're overwhelming the ER, ER because they don't have any options. They don't have health care. We're, right. we're, we're a country that doesn't provide health care universally. And so these people have no options. They get sick and they go to the ER. Well, that o- overwhelms the ER. Just as you said, for, people come in with you know stab wounds and gunshots. And, <laughs> right. Or heart you know, attacks or you know, anything. Yeah, rubella, some sort of <laughs> yeah, malaria, some sort of horrible disease. And they... Uh, they will get seen, but maybe not as quickly as they should have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another element of this that I don't think gets enough attention for obvious reasons, which is the way that the the pandemic in general has highlighted and has highlighted and exacerbated the pre-existing shortcomings and failures of the American. I I hate to even call it a healthcare system because it's really not. It's like anti-healthcare system. But whatever it is we have in this country, private insurance companies that occasionally provision healthcare, um, it's just it, it is it sh- this pandemic should have, I think, motivated more people to demand transformative change regarding the healthcare system. But to my knowledge, it really hasn't. There has not been, for example, like a big movement coalescing around pushing for Medicare for all or something like that beyond what was already in place from Bernie's campaigns and things like things like that, that had been building over the past couple of years. In other words, now would be the time, right? It's like, here's a public health crisis that's affecting everybody where we could 
perhaps take this as an opportunity to, you know, recalibrate the system. And there's, there's just nothing coming down the, the pipeline along, along those lines, despite Democrats being in power or really because of that, right? In my view. What's the because of that? Well, then nothing is coming, I said, despite the Democrats being in power, but it's really because the Democrats are in power. The Democrats, not not by contrast to the Republicans, but just on their own, <laughs> mainstream Democrats don't actually want Medicare for all. There's some lip service to it within the party. And of course, the Bernie wing, which is really an independent wing that has found temporary cover within the Democratic Party, um, is pushing for it. But... There's no support, for example, from the president on that front. There's no support from Nancy Pelosi or other positions, uh, leadership positions within the party for Medicare for all. So they're, you know, the Democrats are failing in that on that front. I guess I've just been thinking about this a lot regarding the upcoming midterm elections and Trump on the horizon in 2024. You know, right. Democrats are failing, I think. Well, you, you made it sound in the construction of what you said, you made it sound as if it is, uh, I don't want to say it's more unlikely, but your phrasing was because the Democrats are in, there won't be any push for, for Medicare, as if there's an, an, a universal Medicare, Medicare for all, as if there's an alternative. Right. That was meant to be a, oh yeah, go ahead. I was well, just going to say, meant to be a little ironic. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there is yeah. an alternative, which is, of course, the Republicans, which would, which would not even provide us with the status quo. I mean, they'd head in the opposite direction, right? Right. Um, yeah, it, it's it's. Uh, well, we may get into this. This is our end of the year <laughs> show. We may get we may get into a retrospective on twenty twenty one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if I should launch into this now, but Whenever. yeah, there, there is within the Democratic Party, as you mentioned, the progressive wing, which the progressive caucus now has 96 members, which can exercise some influence, but it's not enough to be able to convince the corporate centrist Democrats uh, and obviously the far right Republicans, uh, which contains the entire party now, right. uh, to do anything even moving in the direction of universal health care. That, that just seems to be, you know, a ship that sailed. Yeah, or sunk in harbor. <laughs> or, yeah, or blown up in the harbor. Yeah. Anyway. That's all your thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, for the time being. <laughs> That's fair. But I wanted to change direction more than slightly. Yeah, uh, go for it. I noticed, so I know you remained in New York over the... Uh, Christmas break, right? Winter break, whatever, whatever it's called at Columbia. <laughs> and uh, I saw on Instagram uh -oh. that you have been posting recently, meaning the last month or so, some uh, workout clips of yours. Yes. So I'm wondering if you are doing that. Uh, to reveal more about, well, it could be both of these elements, revealing more about you personally, but also is it to serve as any kind of instruction? Mm. Because I know that you at one 
point in your life, you were a personal trainer, a fitness trainer. Yeah, that's so right. What, I'm wondering if that, how you view doing it. Yeah, no, it's a little bit of uh, multiple things, but also nothing. <laughs> so on the one hand, like I will occasionally post a short clip, uh, like uh, me working out, maybe demonstrating uh, an exercise but when I do post those, I almost always post them on Instagram on the, on the story feature, which disappears after 24 hours, right? It's temporary. And I, I use that story feature a lot uh, precisely for that reason, because it's ephemeral, I guess. And I like that it's just sort of, I feel like that, that type of social media is like it's much lower stakes and it also just feels more organic to one's life. So for example, by contrast, when I was talking about perhaps doing that uh, Instagram series about philosophical topics that we talked about recently, that would be a whole production where I'm like preparing, I'm writing, I'm editing the video. And like, it's very, it's not necessarily organic. When I do something like post a workout video um, or just something that I see strolling around the city, it's like literally part of my life right then and there, you know? So for me, that's, that's like, from my side, I like just sort of showing what I'm up to, I guess, in that fashion from time to time. And it's also something that I do spend a lot of my time doing, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's a big part of my life. And it matters to me and I know a fair amount about it. And so I just like to share it, um, right. you know, just for its own sake, for my sake, really anything. This goes to like a deeper philosophy that I have about like social media usage in general, which is that it should, I think it should always be like whatever you post should be about you, like who you are an expression of yourself rather than as it has so often become for many people. Um, crafting something for the purpose of receiving likes or follows or whatever, because there's a, there's a monetization element to it. There's a sort of, you know, like dopamine rush in your brain, you know, brain chemical element to it. People get addicted to the attention or the praise or whatever. And like, I think all of that is really on a spectrum from like problematic to harmful. <laughs> so so, yeah. So for me, trying to stay as close to like an organic representation of one's actual life as possible, I think is a slightly healthier way of engaging with social media. Although I don't know that there's any truly healthy way to engage with it. So I don't know if that gives you. So, I mean, you had other aspects to your question, so I don't know if that's answering them all, but that's my first response. Yeah, well, it, it, your response has led me to ask some other questions. Okay, here here's one because I don't I don't know the technology. You mentioned that the story mode allow disappears after 24 hours. Is right. there something on Instagram that doesn't disappear? That's retained? Right. Exactly. The there's regular posts, they're called just posts. Like that's how Instagram started. It was originally just like you could post a single photo. And it would be like post, like making a tweet, you know, you make a tweet, it goes out to your followers. And then it also remains on your profile until you delete it basically, or, okay. you know, so that it, though, that's the standard 
thing for Instagram. I guess I'm confused as to why for you, the, the disappearance, the, the ephemerality of the story is important mm. because if you wanted people to see your life in relation to the things that at least as far as the physical fitness goes in relation mm. to things you do, why have it disappear? Mm. And, and that's the first question. The second part of that question is if, if you, if, if someone were to, if, let's say if I were to keep a, a log of your posts on Instagram, would I have, would you say I would have uh, a good understanding of you? Would I have any understanding of you as a person? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, those are two good and interesting questions. So the first, um, I guess on the one hand, I do, so like the stories, you can sort of archive the stories if you want that you post. So some I have sort of archived into like a collection that you can find on my profile of that, that puts all the workout uh, videos into one area. I also have like a, an archive for like Clouseau videos and right. uh, Sedona hiking videos or whatever. Yeah, you have some things you've highlighted in text you're reading. Exactly. You, yeah, you'll have some pages that you'll post. Exactly. So I do that too. Right, exactly. And so those, sometimes I do make those available longer term. But then again, like for me, it's more, it's, it's much more focused on or concerned with like myself as the user rather than any audience that I may or may not have. Right. So whatever I'm doing on social media, I don't prioritize like, oh, how is this going to be perceived, received, accessed by others, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, this matters to me. I'm throwing it out there. But, um, and, and whether or not other people like it or not, I don't give a shit. Now, in terms of why I often use those things that disappear rather than saving them or doing it in a different way, one reason is like if I were to if I were to undertake, say, a project of creating like a, a fitness-oriented instructional account or something like that. The reality is that there are hundreds, if not thousands of other people already out there who have completely dedicated accounts to, uh, say, fitness or almost any other niche topic you can imagine. And they, they know all the tricks of the trade. It's their, for many of them, it's their primary or significant source of income. And it's, it's sort of like a business. And like, the amount of effort that it would take for me to even begin to approach doing something like that is not at all even remotely <laughs> worth it to me personally, in terms of how I want to spend my time. So instead it's much easier for me personally to just, when I'm in the middle of a workout, I pop my camera up and film myself for a minute or two and then throw it on a story. Doesn't have to be well edited. Doesn't have to reach in a large audience 
it's just like, oh, this is my Tuesday. This is what I'm, you know, doing a particular workout that I find interesting or enjoyable. And here's what it's all about. Here's a little slice of my life. Goodbye. <laughs> and so then that, I guess, links into your second question, which was like how, if people were to observe this, you know, would they know me? Would they have any understanding of me, et cetera? I think, I think that's part of what I personally am striving for with this kind of approach. Not that you, that I or anyone could provide a comprehensive presentation of oneself through social media. You know, I could say the same, I could ask something similar to you, like your followers on Twitter, if they only know you from your tweets, do they really know you like that kind of thing, right? So the answer, I think, obviously is no, but the extent to which whatever you're sharing online is authentic, an authentic expression of, of yourself, um, then you're at least giving an honest slice of life or slice of yourself to people. So I think that's, that's, try to, that's kind of how I try to approach it. It's like if I post a picture of a book, of a selection from a text I'm reading, I'm really sitting there reading that text or I was within the last few hours or, or day or something like that. You know, it's like, it's an actual uh, facet of my life, but a small one. Okay. I, I guess I'm pushing for the intentionality and you've, you've addressed that certainly in part, but when you are reading a text and you come across a passage you're saying this is really important to me, but you're, but aren't you also saying, and I want you to pay attention to this. Yes. Okay. I think at least in part, or at least, I don't know, this is significant to me, or this is important to me. And also for X, Y, Z reasons, I want to share it. Okay. Yeah. That, I don't want to misunderstand what you're saying. And I feel that I'm on the verge of doing that. No, no. It, if we, it, you, you introduced my use of Twitter. I only post things on Twitter that I want people to think about. I, I don't mm. care whether they think about it, but I, I want them. I'm saying, I think this is important, even if it's jokey or it's, um, uh, it's funny. I, I want them to think about what this is. Mm. So I'm doing it not because I think it's expressive of me, which of course it is, but because I'm directing it at the audience, however, whatever my audience is. You don't appear to be doing that. You appear, appear to be saying, here's a reflection of who I am through what I'm doing or reading or thinking. Whatever you think of that, however you think of it, I don't care. <laughs> Right. This is really about me getting out to you. I don't really care what you what your reaction is. Yes. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean that's my general disposition, yes. And I think because you know, part of it also is like this goes back to some like sort of my uh like more general thoughts about social media usage is and its connection to like identity and sense of self. I think the internet in general and social media in particular, and especially the way that there are different social media platforms that sort of silo different types of behaviors and maybe forms of interaction, you know, photos on Instagram, 
thoughts or jokes or whatever on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Like that can have this very fragmenting effect, I think. And also create like on one sense of self, like, oh, I'm a professional on LinkedIn with my, you know, suit on and my CV. Uh, but, you know, I'm, a, a, you know, whatever, a delinquent on Instagram uh, and I f- follow alt- the alt-right on Twitter or something. So all these different aspects uh, of people's identities that get spread across varying platforms and with different levels of sort of exposure, right? Which is also, I think, uh, reflective of how we navigate the real world in many ways, too. Right. You go to your place of employment, you dress and behave a certain way versus if you're going to a concert with friends or something like that. So all of this is to say that I think if and when possible, we should strive to present a stable, integrated self across different modes of expression or different social media platforms. And it, and to that end, like in terms of me, not necessarily trying to speak to an audience, but rather just broadcasting my life, that I think is sort of the difference. Like, I think there's some merit, especially for maybe someone like myself who has different, has non-mainstream ideas and interests to just sort of offer again, a small sliver of my authentic life as a, as an example, like of just of a way of living of, of who I am and people can take that or not. I'm not interested in trying to convince people or like sell myself to people. Uh, but if for some reason they either meet me in real life, stumble across me online are intrigued and follow me, then they're going to get the real deal, you know, or at least some tiny fraction of it. Right. Am I correct in assuming that you would not make any value judgment uh, about what you post versus someone who takes pictures of uh, his lunch? (laughs) No, you mean value judgment in the sense of like mine's better and his is worse or something? Yes, M- mine yeah. mine has some value no. that I'm I'm contributing, and and this person picture of his avocado toast <laughs> uh, has none. No, I mean I think I guess you could there there could be a, a, a sort of a small argument to make uh, if if you're interested in like online activism, which I have been involved with in some sense, um, you know, of like maybe those types of accounts and those types of posts are deeper and more meaningful. It can have some kind of um, positive impact on the world as opposed to just posting pictures of the new shoes you bought or the lunch you're having or whatever. You could maybe, you know, make that kind of argument. Um, But in terms of, but that's through a different lens, I guess, than what I was talking about before my, the lens that I think is most important is like sort of an authentic self-expression of the thing of how you are actually living your own life and of the things that matter to you. So there's nothing, no, I would not take the position that somebody who exclusively 
post pictures of their lunch or other main mundane things is somehow inferior. Um, maybe they're uninteresting to me or, or to others, or maybe they're more interesting. I mean, there are accounts on Instagram and other places that have millions of followers and, you know, there are people posting things that you and I would probably have little to no interest in and might even go on to make an argument that they are harmful, like the Kardashians or something like this, you know. But at the end of the day, what I'm concerned with and what I think social media gives us the, a, a, a small possibility for, or at least a different possibility for, is like living one's life as a work of art and expressing, finding ways to express and communicate that to people through many different avenues. Do you think of your life that way? As yeah. A work of, as a work of art? I think so. Yeah. I think how do you understand? How do you understand? How do you understand that? I mean, what makes yours a work of art and somebody else's not? Or is everybody's life a work of art? I would. I think everyone's is. I think the difference is the extent to which people are self-conscious about it, and maybe have intentionality behind it, and are also good at it. <laughs> um, it like you know, there's art is subjective, right? But nevertheless we're going to make judgments about what art is perhaps better or worse than other works of art. And, but I think that's sort of a side issue for me. What's, what's key is the um, self-awareness and intentionality. And, and then for me personally, the value, the sort of master value becomes uh, like integrity, integrity in the sense of an authenticity, which is a, 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 tr a trueness to oneself. So it's, it's not the case that people or anyone should, or perhaps even can be like totally morally good, for example, but what they can be, I think more achievably is uh, true to oneself and honest with oneself and, and also about one's own failings, et cetera, and also try to uh, communicate those things publicly, or at least not hide them or obfuscate about them. So authenticity and integrity defined through authenticity are the things that matter most to me in the sense of living one's life as a work of art and also perhaps, at least in some small way, and this may become, you know, assuming the planet doesn't explode soon or whatever, this may become more and more possible as technology continues to advance and we move into virtual reality, et cetera, et cetera, um, to, to whatever extent possible, try to uh, outwardly express and broadcast that to people, both for its own sake and perhaps at times with the intention of being instructive. I'm hung up on the art part. Sure. I, I understand. I, I understand what you're saying about, about wanting to live and the need for living an authentic life, uh, which seems like a completely worthy goal. And, um, A, a great target to aim for but i'm not 
clear on, on where the art part comes in. I guess I don't understand how you conceive of art. Well, I guess I think um, for me, it's coming from like two major influences. Uh, the first being Nietzsche and the second being Sartre. Um, Nietzsche, I think, pretty clearly speaks about this notion of living one's life as a work of art and the importance of aesthetics. Um, but Sartre uh, it, and existentialism more generally, we were talking about this before in one of our conversations. Uh, if, we, if we think of ourselves as being creatures that create ourselves, then what would that process be of self-creation other than an artistic one, I guess, is that would be my sort of starting position. Maybe you disagree. It's not an artistic process, but I, I don't I don't agree or disagree. Oh, okay. I, I'm I'm just trying to understand more of how you conceive of art. And what what is I think you said uh in the last episode, the last encounter, I can't, I'm not going to get the quotation right. So I'll, I'll stumble my way <laughs> into something barely resembling what you said. And then you can actually give the, the real quotation. Something yeah. about the limitations of art are its, are its saving grace or something like that. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a quote attributed to Orson Welles and uh, it's the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. Okay. So what I would like to understand is what, where are the limitations for you uh, in creating an artful life? Mm. I, I just don't see if everyone is self-creating, then everyone is an artist and no life is not artful. Right. That can't be, that can't be right. That can't be what you're saying because it sounds as if you're trying to make a distinction between some kinds of living and other kinds of living. And where I, the only way I see that divided or bifurcated is through the notion of authenticity. So if someone is living authentically, that by definition then is an artful life. Mm. Is that right for you? I don't know. I, I think it, I might just say that it's like necessary, but not sufficient to be authentic, right? And because I think there's probably, you know, I don't have a fully fleshed out like uh, schema for all of this, but I would, the, the two big ones that I already mentioned were, you know, authenticity and integrity, and but then also a self-consciousness or a self-awareness. So I think it, it could be the case that someone could live authentically but with very little self-awareness. And I don't know that I would say that that is as um, artful as somebody who's living authentically with, with more self-awareness or, and or intentionality. And like one of the things like, you know, you brought up the Wells quote and the limitations, I think the limitations are 
I mean, they, they can be many different things. They could be limitations imposed on us from certain cultural norms in our society uh, or aspects of our belief systems that we're raised with. Uh, but also things, I think maybe the biggest one is like life experiences and how those can sort of mm, constrain and hinder our self-understanding and self-expression. So we can just think of like trauma generally, right? So if you experience trauma, especially in childhood, it shapes you. And I think in many cases sort of constrains or traps or creates deep grooves, which are almost inescapable for people. And those types of limitations are ones that I think are perhaps best and maybe only uh, overcome or transcended through an artful act or series of acts of self-creation and self-recreation. Like Nietzsche says, I'm that which overcomes itself, that kind of thing. I don't know if that actually answers yeah, your I'm question. Yeah, I'm just... <laughs> This is me. I'm I'm just hung up on no. Keep on, pushing on, I, the idea of art. Yeah, I I don't I I don't know why. That's the term you would use. Mm. What what that's supposed to convey. I, I don't know, and again, this may just be, this could very well just be me. <laughs> you just think it doesn't fit. Like like what word would you maybe use instead? Or like because I think you probably agree with some of the general process I'm describing at least. Oh, I, I, I agree completely with it. Yeah. What you're saying about self, the need for self-awareness and authenticity and integrity that we are all self-creating. I, yeah, I agree with all that. I just don't know why it, it is somehow, I don't want to say it's reduced. That's not fair, mm. but somehow it, it uh, embodies the idea of art. Uh, that, that seems, I don't know what, I don't really know what that, what it means because I guess I don't have a conception of I don't I don't have an understanding of how you conceive of art. I guess that's mm -hmm. the hang up for me. But it, yeah. it's incidental in the sense that I don't want this to become uh, I don't want us to become hung up on semantics because I think what you've described about what you're calling artful living mm -hmm. are important elements. I just I'm just hung up on the art part. That's that's all. <laughs> That's fair. And that's, I mean, it's, I, I always appreciate when you do get hung up on things because you just keep pushing and never stop. So that's helpful yeah. for my thinking. Well, I, I will stop if I, if, when, if I get an answer. <laughs> yeah, that's satisfying. Well, here's what I, here's how I conceive of art. Right. And that's what I don't have quite like ready made to hand to you. I can just give you a few sort of influences, like I already mentioned Nietzsche and Sartre, but I mean, there's also like the long tradition of, like philosophy as a way of life, right? And so like a practice, whether that's Stoicism or, or Buddhism, di different practices and things, which I think if you take those things seriously, those are themselves perhaps arts, but also would be constituent of a life that is, that is lived as a as an work of art in the way that I'm trying to describe. Um, but then I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah all, all of that. I, I don't have an issue with any of that. Okay. I just don't understand the term. 
and again, we're, we're I'm just sledgehammering this poor dead animal right. called art. I just don't understand what you think art is, what it does, and why you would apply uh, creative living, Mm. why you would apply art to creative living. Okay. Well, I guess- It it seems, seems, I I don't mean this to be uh, a a criticism because I'm just trying to grasp it. It It seems seems grandiose. I was going to say (laughs) self-important. Yeah. Yeah. It it seems grandiose to me to, to, to refer to it as- Art. art i i can understand why you might why it might hit you that way but i really think i i don't think it needs to be well on the one hand i say fuck yeah it's grandiose like <laughs> i'm only here for a little while and each of us is only alive for a little while and we get to burn as brightly and how and whatever shades of color that we want to you know so on the one hand like what could be you know what could be more grandiose than deliberately attempting to live one's life how one wishes to live it? But that's not that's not the grandiose part. <laughs> what is like, I, that I, we I, matter? That we're more than specks of dust or something like that? No, none of that matters. It's just the idea that you you reduce it to something called art. I don't, but I don't know what art is. If you said oh, okay. to me, when you go to a museum and you look at works of art. Mm. And you're including sculptor, sculpture, painting, uh, I don't know what else, architecture itself. The, this, is, this is a work of art. What does that mean to people? Mm. If you said this building itself is a work of art, meaning what? Right. I, what, what is that conveying? So for me, art resides primarily on the emotional level. There's an mm. either either an emotional connection, possibly an emotional disconnection, or no connection at all. Right, you're plugged in, you're unplugged, you're not plugged at all. Right. right. Okay. That that is itself reductive. I understand that. But what I want to know is this is why I asked you about the limitations. What is it that you see in calling something an artful life that in any way reflects what we understand as a work of art? painting, mm. novel, piece of philosophy, whatever. What, what makes it art? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, okay, then I guess I would say one is that it's a, it's a creative act. So for me, art captures, it's the most generalized term. It's sort of, uh, yeah, the most generalized term for creation human acts of human creation so whatever whatever object whether it's a painting or a sculpture or even um you know tools perhaps i think almost anything that's created by human intelligence could be construed as a work of art uh although at the same time certain things are going to be viewed as being more uh, in the domain of art as opposed to, you know, just utilitarian uh, items uh, like tools. Nevertheless, I think that's a huge facet of it for me, the the act of creation itself and the fact that that creation is being performed with some intentionality and some purpose and 
uh, you know, depending whether, well, I think maybe this might be the case at all times. It's just, again, a degree of uh, self-awareness that the act of artistic creation is going to involve values and value judgments, right? So even, even things like architecture or um, urban planning or uh, the design of various appliances or whatever, all of these things make certain assumptions and certain value judgments, I think, about uh, the world. And those become manifest in the work of art uh, through, its, through the design choices that shape its creation. So that's the so create so creation itself is one huge aspect of it that I think applies like sort of very obviously to self creation, living of one's own life, whatever. But then also, I mean, there's I think there's a material, um, a material in the same way that painters have paint or sculptors have clay or whatever, right? There's a material that is um, modified and by an agent right or or an agency and i guess that so there's a subject and an object at least up into the point at which subject and object dissolve right thinking here about the stuff that you've written about and studied and that i've studied as well about the creation of identity construction of identity and then its eventual deconstruction right so some of so I think having a, an active agent, so to speak, and also a material or materials that are used in this process of creation, an artistic process of creation, I think that those are two major things that qualify it as artistic for me. Okay, you, you still don't buy it. Oh no, no, <laughs> no. I don't. It's too. It's too amorphous. It's too gobby. It's too. It's. It's. There isn't anything. I mean, I. I have behind me on the bookshelf four books I've written. Right. I cr I created those. You start with a blank screen or a blank page, then you fill it with scribbling, or uh, you know, code called words. Right. I can tell you right now, none of that is artful. <laughs> it's not art. That's not art. I wrote them. I created them. I had intentionality. I had uh, materials. I had all that. It's not art. That's but not it, art. what if? But would you? Would okay? So you, the what I would describe as the artist, we'll say the non-artist, <laughs> since you're not an artist according to you. Would you, as the non-artist, saying? that you, the books that you've written are not art does that is that the end all be all in other words could and could we imagine a scenario where i or anyone else comes along and finds those books on a shelf and says and says these are in fact works of art would you allow uh, for that or would you say nah you're just uh, wrong I, no no i would never say that mm. but i would as best as i could try to keep my distance from that person <laughs> I don't want to interact with that person. I don't want to see that person. That person has some real flaws. And <laughs> but is okay. So then <laughs> no, no, look, look, I know so, you're being tongue in cheek, but <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, I, uh, 
I received an email uh, from somebody who was reading Pinzac, the, the novel, my novel right. Pinzac. Oh, the one that I still have to buy to support your lavish lifestyle. Yes, exactly. Because I'm yeah. suffering right now because you haven't <laughs> had the, the, the good sense to go out and save your friend. Um, and and she told me that in her son had read it and said that he'd come across this really beautiful chapter. Mm. And she said, and I think I know which one it is. So I wrote her back and I said, well, which one is it? Uh, yeah. And she said, I, so I don't want to tell you yet because mm. I, I want to finish the book because there may be other chapters, beautiful chapters. Okay. I'm, I'm delighted to hear it. I'm surprised to hear it, but I'm <laughs> delighted to hear it. But that is for me, the key element. And you mentioned Nietzsche's aesthetics. If there isn't an aesthetic element, and I mean an almost an overwhelming aesthetic aspect to whatever it is we're talking about, then it isn't art. Mm. There has so if I go into a forge and I make a hammer, and I come out and I or better I make a knife, and we come and I bring it out and you look at it and you go yeah that's a knife it looks oh that's really sharp that's really good it cuts like one of those Japanese knives you see advertised on <laughs> Kinsu <laughs> yeah Kinsu yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that looks great okay. I made it because of it's. I needed a knife, mm. and that seemed something that the the forger could. Is that what they're called? No, they're not furrier. What are they called? The people. I who, don't remember actually. Blacksmiths, whatever, yeah. whatever the technical term is. <laughs> um, he, that's what he could instruct me to make. Right. And then he makes a knife, and I look at it and go, "Wow, that's a piece of art." Mm. Why? What's the difference between the two of them? It has something to do with the aesthetics. Mm. One, one face, we might agree on a face that both of us would say, that's a beautiful face. Well, why isn't every face a beautiful face? And of course, some people say, well, all faces are beautiful because it's, it's reflecting <laughs> the radiance inside you. Yes, yes, fine. Right. But there's something about the composition of features that makes a face undeniably beautiful. Right. Symmetry or whatever. Yes. Symmetry, uh, the spacing of the eyes, the fullness of the lips, whatever it's going to be. Okay. There, there's an aesthetic there. And I think that's the element that for me is really the starting point of understanding art. Mm. And I, if you wanted to become, <laughs> if you wanted to become highfalutin uh, about this, you would say, when you study the ancient Greeks, they will tell you that, that beauty and truth and the good are all very much the same thing. Right. Yes. But that's at a level where we are, you and I have talked about this, where we are at the profoundly transcendent level, at the, at the boundary of, between the unbounded and the bounded, the manifest and the unmanifest. Right. Okay. Other than that, stepping <laughs> down there are distinctions. Right? So the, the three aren't united. And that is where I think we are, or I am anyway, with understanding art. There has to be that emotional slash, there has to be an emotional aspect, not that it predominates, led by a predominant aspect that is the aesthetic aspect, the aspect of beauty, because that seems to me to separate a building that's completely functional versus a building that is beautiful and mm -hmm. still functional. So that's, that's, that's why I'm, I'm 
I'm struggling to understand when you say you live an artful life, if it's in, if the beauty resides in the integrity of the whole, of how seamless the pieces fit together, now we're talking about something. Okay. Now I think, okay. Now I think I'm beginning to get it. Uh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. There's a lot that I could respond to. I'm trying to figure out how to address the key points. I think I just the, jump in whenever, whatever comes across the yeah, I'm trying. transit. I'm thinking, okay, the, one of the things that is maybe separating us on this point is some of what you were just saying about aesthetics seems to suggest to me that for you aesthetics are either sort of unitary meaning there is a single standard of beauty say a, maybe perhaps very generalized like we were talking about in the case of faces with symmetry and certain features or whatever but nevertheless there's sort of a single standard of, of beauty uh, to be either met or uh, unmet by uh, a face or a building or whatever. And I, and I don't know whether based on your comments, that is you're, you're tying that sort of subjectively to your own personal preferences and, or, more universally to an abstract standard like maybe something like the greeks may have had or something like that but but for me i think if we keep drilling into this then that that would be a a point of divergence possibly because although i would agree with that like say like i have preference aesthetic preferences for types of music or uh whatever you know different types of art um, personal preferences, nevertheless, at the same time, I can recognize that additional, additional standards and preferences exist and are not inferior or superior to my own. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's your position, but if we keep digging, then for me, the next sort of step is to say, well, it's almost to fall back on the cliche, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but that, but I would take that and shift it and be like, from what perspective is the beauty being sought? So, you know, you gave the example of like making a shitty knife or an ax or whatever, uh, as the blacksmith's apprentice. Okay. Well, yeah, your little knife is ugly compared to the expert blacksmith's incredible dagger with all this ornamentation and whatever but nevertheless the item that you produce can and i think should be viewed as beautiful from a variety of other perspectives including for example your own uh, with awareness of maybe the growth and progress you've made in the pursuit of this skill uh, maybe a friend or a, a parent of yours who feels a sense of pride in your achievement, these types of things. And like the, those are just as the, the beauty that those perceptions are connecting with or resting on to me are, is just as valid as like a, a more strict 
what we usually associate with like visual, say visual aesthetics, like features like symmetry and, and color, coloration and things that we were talking about earlier. So I guess maybe I'm, I'm saying I have like this, I guess I have like a, a, a broader idea of aesthetics than I, than I sort of had explained up, up to now. So we, I don't know if we're even talking about exactly the same thing. I don't know, uh, that, even know if any of what I just said makes any fucking sense at all, but yeah, it, it does. And I think um, perhaps you have discovered in this conversation that you have a much broader understanding of aesthetics than you, than you thought you had when, before we started talking. Yeah, certainly. Which is good. Yeah. But I would then push back on that and say, well, what you have to then do with this very broad understanding of aesthetics is follow Orson Welles and figure out what the limitations are, because now it mm. seems as if anything created, anything created is beautiful, which I don't think is true. And I'm not sure you think that either. Mm. I think all, I do, actually. Well, I, there are all sorts of things that are. Well, remember what Nietzsche also said, that that there can be creative destruction. Right. So in destroying things, you can also be creating and, and that may or may not be beautiful for you. It's going to be beautiful for me. It may not be right. depending on what's being destroyed. Destroying somebody's life, I don't think is beautiful. Y you might think maybe the way the person was eviscerated or decapitated <laughs> that has a beauty to it in the flow no, of the blood or no, whatever it's no. going to be. No, but, not but quite anyway. like that, but we'll set that aside. But I just want to okay. say not quite like that. I would make a different argument about how I could envision that as being beautiful, but go okay. continue with your point. Uh, I was just going to return to what you were talking about, but standards of beauty versus something more um, undefined. Mm -hmm. So back to Pinzac. In Pinzac, <laughs> I have a character named Mona, uh, Mona Boyd. And in describing Mona, I said something like this. Uh, she was not beautiful, but she was striking, but not beautiful. But in looking at her, you thought maybe our understanding of beauty or our categories of beauty should change to make sure she fit in. So I think that's my view, which is that, yes, there are standards, which we might call standards of beauty, but they are not rigid. Right. They're not they're not reified. They 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 can expand and they can contract. Is there a universal sense of beauty? I, I think there have been times when people have tried to put that to the test in the sense that they will show people pictures, particularly of women, and say, do we get agreement that this is a beautiful face, regardless of the the race, maybe even, but often not regardless of age, age has something to do with apparently making those, those of us who are older, more and more hideous. Oh no, your face is beautiful. No, that's bullshit. You may, what you may be saying is, oh, this is a life of great character. This is life shows a life. Well, of heavy living, you know, of, of profligacy of degeneracy. Look at this face. It's destroyed, but yes, it's still beautiful. And that's horse shit. That's not true. You don't think that for a second. Uh, but anyway, so this leads us back to, to destruction, right? right? So tell me how you think destroying, well, it couldn't be, you don't think it in a general sense, right? Or do you? That destruction can be beautiful? Yeah. That any, I, anything destroyed, you could say it's creative. That's mm. creative destruction. And that has a beauty to it. 
Maybe. I think a lot, I think in many cases, if there can be an, an aspect of creation or creativity that's sort of extracted from or rescued within the destructive act, then that that would probably at least serve as a signpost towards viewing its beauty. But I, I haven't thought about it enough to say categorically that it's all about finding the creation and the destruction. I think more generally, I would feel comfortable saying like some of what I was saying before about it all depends on the perspective. And I think, and this is also kind of why I don't even really like at least in one sense, I don't really like the terms like beautiful and ugly or, or any of the, the sort of different uh, gradations on that spectrum, because I think that whatever those things are talking about or pointing towards, it's more of like a, it's a, almost a system for me, like, maybe it'll help if I try and think of an example. Like I was thinking about uh, in the natural world, like a predator devouring prey, that's destruction. And maybe there's, well, there clearly is an element of creation or at least um, sort of life, life sustaining uh, forces within that, right? The cheetah has to survive. Cats are obligate carnivores. And so it has to eat the antelope or, you know, and it's going to be vicious and violent and whatever. So from, from one point of view, that's ugly and, or hideous, or, or, and maybe even some people, at least people, some maybe radical vegetarians or vegans would say that, uh, that that's morally wrong, perhaps not for the cheetah, but for humans, right? It's morally wrong to consume meat. But from a, from other perspectives uh, that w- coexist, in my view, simultaneously with the perspective I just gave, that process can be viewed as beautiful, right? So this is why, for me, I think this is some of my Nietzschean influence also, is like the perspectivism and the way that uh, good and evil or bad and ugly all depend, or excuse me, uh, beautiful and ugly, uh, all depend on perspective, but I would say that, the, in my view, those perspectives can coexist, can and do coexist simultaneously, such that it almost doesn't make sense to me to say, "Oh, this is beautiful." Well, yeah, okay, it's beautiful. It's also ugly. Uh, at the, always at the same time, I think, just depending on how you're looking at it. Like a young woman, beautiful from one perspective, ugly from another. Uh, maybe you write a description of her features saying how she's beautiful and you write a different description of uh, whatever illnesses or just the process of decay and decomposition that attends the existence of organic life generally. And she becomes ugly. You know, it's just, it's all about perspective for me. And these things exist simultaneously, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you lost me on that one. <laughs> you just you think I'm incoherent or you disagree or both? I certainly I certainly disagree. Are you incoherent? I think maybe you lapsed in incoherence only at the very end. 
<laughs> when you look at a beautiful face and say it's also ugly. Yeah, that doesn't. I don't. I don't see that. Okay, but but I would leave open the possibility that that could be. I guess let me just elaborate slightly then to try and make the point more clear. I, what I was trying to get at with that is like, what are you attending to, in your perception? What are you attending to, and what are you organizing into your perception and organizing out of your perception? Well, right. th this may help with. This may help in the conversation uh, because it gets to my view of art. Mm. I'm not analyzing anything. I'm not focused on anything. I'm not assessing anything. I'm simply reacting. And I'm reacting uh, to the gestalt, mm. to the overall impact. So a beautiful face, a beautiful building, a beautiful painting, a beautiful poem. There isn't any element of analysis. There isn't any element of taking it apart. There is simply allowing the effect to hit me. Right. So walking in a museum, I can look at a wall full of paintings and not be stopped at any moment and then turn the corner and suddenly I see something and I don't know what it is. I'm not analyzing it. It just hits me. Mm. Now it's hitting me. I'm going to say on an emotional level, but I'm not even sure that's right. It's hitting me. It's having a real impact on me. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me is art, but I understand that, that the same impact that that that's called painting or sculpture has had on me may not have that effect on you at all. Right. There are people who consider, uh, what, what, you'll have to help me here. Um, the, I guess it's a sculpture called Piss Christ. You remember this one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of this. I can't remember all the details. Okay. But yeah. This is, I think it's something that's a toilet. And I don't remember it, there's Christ pissing in it or there's something. I think there's a crucifix in it and the toilet is filled with the artist's piss. Okay. Like, yeah. Something okay. like that. Yeah. Now that's considered, that's called art. It's displayed right. in a museum. It has all of the external trappings of what's called art. Somebody created it. Somebody then constructed it, right? They had a conception. They, they put this together. Uh, people, it had an impact on people apparently because at least the people who curate the museum said, let's put this in as an exhibit. Right doesn't strike me in any way as art at all. Now, I see that it operates on a conceptual level. Mm. And I'm not saying that you can't have conceptual art. We've just been talking about, about some of that. Right. Uh, people who, who write in a certain way, create in a certain way. Okay. I can see that conceptually, but it doesn't have any impact on me. Uh, not even to say that I'm repulsed by it. I, I, I have no reaction to it. So it's not <laughs> beautiful and it's not ugly. Right. It's just there. And I'm, I think my reaction would be, huh. <laughs> Moving oh. on. <laughs> okay. What's yeah. this? Piss Christ. Oh, my God. Oh, all right. Well, Christ had to take a pee somewhere. I even pissed here. <laughs> all right. I, yeah. I, so, uh, 
Anyway, where are we circling the drain here? Are we <laughs> circling the drain on the piss Christ? Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> on, the, to... on the whole art, on the whole art aspect, do we need to move on? Maybe I want to, I just want to make one more comment, I guess, because you raised like this. First, I was thinking as you were talking about um, this book that Dewey has called Art as Experience. I don't know if you've read that one. I haven't read the no. whole thing. Yeah. No, so you should check it out when you get a chance. Cause I read, par- I read some excerpts from it at some point in my time here at Columbia. And uh, he has a very interesting take on art, which I think is at least partially similar to your own. So in, you know, he wants to really focus on exactly what the title says, the, perception of art as an experience as an as an experiential event you know and he kind of gets into the perceptual process and the kind of transactional in his sense try to transactional uh process between the work of art the artist who created the work of art and the audience or uh, perceiver of the work of art and all of that i think you know is kind of wrapped up in what you were saying about gestalt and sort of the overall, just the holistic, uh, yeah, experience. But then also I think um, the, the, what you were talking about with the piss Christ, how it would not affect you sort of highlights the, maybe the truth in some of what, what Dewey was saying as I just described it, but also just the more general point that we were discussing about the way that the, the viewer uh, is an essential component of the, like the art itself. In other words, I, maybe I find Piss Christ extremely moving for whatever reason. And we're standing side by side. The gestalt is essentially the same. What's different you and I, like our personal experiences, what we bring what we bring. So where that's, I think the more general point that I wanted to make as a result of these comments, which is that we are part of the gestalt ourselves, or at least you could make the argument, right? So it's not the case that this art is just out there um, in the world and we're taking that in, but we ourselves are becoming implicated or maybe already always already are implicated in that uh, scene. And the last point that I wanted to make was just, I was thinking also about, I know Emerson has written, but I don't remember exactly where about like the connection of the sublime with art and the experience of being in awe, right? Especially for him of nature. And I think it's a similar thing where it's like that for me is, is uh, an aspect of, of beauty that is definitely different from and and perhaps above and beyond uh, a more conventional aesthetics, right? So if something for whatever reason or reasons affects you and gives you this feeling of the sublime or a sense of being overawed, then I think that that can occur even in the absence of something that is conventionally beautiful or appealing. Does, does that make sense? Like, and then that in and of itself renders that thing beautiful. Right. (laughs) 
yeah, it's hard for me to understand how some beautiful things could be rendered ugly, but uh, I also understand how some beautiful things can be rendered ugly. Uh, just not every beautiful thing. Yeah. Would seem, but, but that seemed to be implied in what you were saying, that there is this inseparability uh, with the inseparability of this, the dual aspect that any, anything judged beautiful must also be simultaneously ugly. Mm. Um, but I, I take the point that you made, and I think it's a good one. The, I, I completely agree with you that the, the impact is personal. Mm. because as you said, you and I can both be looking at the same sculpture, the same painting and have very different responses. Right. Now, I feared that you were drifting to the postmodern a little bit and I became oh. frightened <laughs> uh, when you said, you know, we are already, already always are implicated. Mm. And if the next, in the next moment you were to say, and because we're implicated, we are, the artists ourselves, I was about to either vomit or, or just run away. Wow. Uh, but fortunately you didn't say that. Yeah. So. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, although I might say it in one small sense, I wouldn't say that like in looking at a painting, I am the artist of that painting, but in looking at a painting, because I take the position that living one's life is itself an artful act, I would say that I am continuing to be that kind of artist in the moment that I'm observing or perceiving other works of art what makes you an artist in that moment then is not the impact but then the the self-awareness to follow through on understanding what the impact is and how it happened mm. right is that right that's that that would be part of it but then i think that's almost a little bit separate i'm making a sort of met like you're talking about like after i go to the louvre or whatever and i look at paintings there and then i write a journal uh, entry or a, an essay uh, reflecting on my experience like you're talking about that kind of thing right i, I no not necessarily i i don't know what i'm talking about oh okay now that's generally some, true all something the time. that happens after the <laughs> no it can no? be it can be at in the moment Okay. But I guess for me, in order for you to say that you are, that, that seeing the painting, feeling its impact, there has to be an element of self-awareness there mm -hmm. that it's happening. And then you're in that moment, mm -hmm. right? It can't be that you then later on journal about it. That seems to me to be not artful. In other words, it seems to me that the art is is continuous. It's never ending in an artful life. Mm. That every experience is itself part of this artful life, depending on whether the elements you describe, the authenticity, integrity, self-awareness, are all present. So yeah. anything you anything you process, no, sorry, anything you experience has to in some level be processed, not after the fact, but during the fact. I think yes, but then th that raises another concern, which is like, uh, and this is one that I think everybody uh, deals with moment to moment, day to day, which is like the scope of processing in that fashion. Like how much energy, yeah. how much, yeah. you know, how, yeah. what can I process today? Yeah. Can I and, only 
drink from the fire hose of life, you know, or just a little yeah. from a drinking straw, you know. And, and how, yes. And how do I want to do it? How much, how, how much impact has this had? So, so I'll give you an example. I, when I was mm. teaching high school, we took a field trip to the Cleveland Art Museum, or maybe it's the Cleveland Art Institute. I can't remember what it's called in Cleveland Circle. And uh, I was, I wasn't leading the kids to the museum because I, I was just a chaperone. You know, I was the adult supposed to go along with this. But I remember coming across this uh, Chinese scroll and I couldn't get away from it. I just, I couldn't get away. I, so I sat down and I just looked at this thing and it, and I wrote a poem sitting there. Now, I think that, I, I have no idea whether this Chinese scroll was a work of art. It seemed to me to be, I mean, it didn't have to hang in the Cleveland Museum for this to have an, an emotional impact on me. Right. And I certainly can't judge whether it was beautiful and I wasn't looking at it in that way. And I guess this comes back to what we were, I was saying earlier. Beauty is, an, is maybe the principal element when I think about art, but it isn't the sole element. Mm. And oftentimes it isn't the most important one. It can be uh, eclipsed by something else. So it's the impact it has. It begins with the emotion. There's an emotional impact that this has on me. And maybe the emotion is too, too narrowing. It has an impact. So I was just thinking about what you were saying about the, the uh, lion, the cheetah killing the gazelle. Right. Okay. So I thought about that and I said, can violence be artistic? Mm. I thought, okay. And I thought of Quentin Tarantino, right. who seems, I don't want to say obsessed, but often focused on violence and bloodletting right now many people consider his some of his films to be works of art i don't know if it's by definition because it's a film it's a work of art i don't think that's true mm. but there's something about about tarantino and about some of his viewers who see the whole the gestalt of the film and the violence within it as part of the art Okay, so I can't gainsay that. I can't say that that's inappropriate or wrong or not true. Right. So I can see how it can be an element in that. It isn't, it isn't really for me, but I think it, doesn't, it isn't powerful enough as a piece of art to shock me out of my conventional view or out of my, my personal standard view, the standards that I've created, either mm -hmm. that I've borrowed from society or borrowed from culture at large, and that I have in, in my own crucible, I have created something called my standard of art. Right. But I can imagine that somebody could create something that was so powerful, so impactful, that had violence in it, that I might review <laughs> my view about what about how violence could be beautiful. Yeah. I'm not denying it, right? So I'm not saying that can't possibly happen. I'm just saying I, I don't know that I've seen it. So for you- You know where it's come close. Yeah, yeah. Where it's come close, <laughs> I mentioned this to you uh, in the past repeatedly, is Alejandro Jodorowsky's movie oh. El Topo. Yeah, I still need to watch that. Which I think is 
he comes close to it because he 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 not only cherishes violence he relishes it right and there's there but you can see that there is an aesthetic quality to it that it's perverse on one level and it's disturbing <laughs> but that's part of the beauty of it is to disturb you and again that's one of the things that would shock you out of out of my standard view mm. right? or the splitting of the eyeball right. in in um and delusion dog salvador dali and luis buñuel's movies uh, uh movie and delusion dog i haven't seen it but it sounds uh, intense you think <laughs> how can this be beautiful but there's something about it you know it's one of those things you're shocked but then you see what's happening you're shocked out of i think if you well here's i think maybe this is a beautiful example you're shocked out of your regular self-awareness into a new level of self-awareness where you're saying to yourself oh my god what the hell is this and then you're going wait a minute and then a sudden in the realization wait a minute you're saying to yourself i'm now seeing this in a different way right that my my self-awareness has i'm hoping elevated it may have declined <laughs> but nevertheless you're you're sort of knocked out of your conventional views yeah. but i don't and... want to call it conventional i want to call it standard because okay right because conventional want... has yeah yeah and i want to leave the, the opening that you introduced which is that you you can self-create mm. a standard which can of course borrow from conventional views but right. may transcend it in many ways so yes yeah, so i want to call it a standard a standard view yes I think that's fair. And I was thinking also, like, as you were describing that and giving that example, like, I think there are other words that can and should be used in, uh, when talking about beauty uh, than, than just words that pertain to whether or not we find it appealing, right? So, like, right. beauty can be unsettling. Beauty can be captivating, and, you know, something that's captivating could be ugly or, you know, pretty, whatever, either one of those things or violent or peaceful or whatever, like it can be very captivating. And I think that's an important part of what beauty is. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that things like being captivated or being unsettled or, or a feeling of the sublime that, that we should use those exclusively and not talk about some of the things we were discussing earlier, like the more, more regularly aesthetic elements of beauty. But I do think they have to be in the mix, at least if we want to think about these sort of edge cases or these, these cases that maybe bump up against or transgress our personal standards, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I was also thinking like even – even the story of the crucifixion of Christ is, I mean, that could maybe be an example of one of the most, it's a story of violence and death that for many people is a, is the most beautiful thing that they know in their lives. Right. And then that also has been represented cinematically more or less by Mel Gibson, right in the passion of the Christ, which was, which is like very gory and violent. And nevertheless, it's in service of telling what for many people is an extremely beautiful story. 
so I don't know. That was just something that occurred to me, because, like digging back down into those sort of Nietzschean and value value laden depths, you know, of the kind of connection between aesthetics and and morality. That's just something I was thinking about as you were talking about the viol- the violence in El Topo and the rabbit massacre. Yeah, or whatever it is. I still haven't well, seen it. Yeah, there is a rabbit massacre. <laughs> Uh, an actual massacre. I mean, he oh, actually, he kills, actually them, kills them on, on camera. Um, yeah, you can see, I, I think the crucifixion is an interesting example <laughs> to use because it's, as you said, it is, it's value-laden going in. Nobody talks about the two thieves who were crucified along with Christ. Nobody talks about them. Right. Nobody There's cares one about verse them. about them or whatever, and then we move yeah. on. <laughs> and if you saw, if you were to drive your chariot along the Roman lane that was just full of bodies that had been crucified, it's hard to imagine you would see beauty in that. Although right. I suppose you could bring some kind of sense that they were enemies of Rome and you as a champion of Rome saw beauty in this justified killing who knows what the hell. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, that, I think that's one possible example for sure. Yeah. But it's, but the, but the crucifixion of Christ has special meaning for people and there's beauty in that. But if you, my point of that about that was to strip away the meaning. Mm. Uh, and then when just look at the act, but right. you can't, right. You can't. If you strip away the meaning, it's just another crucifixion and some horrible act of violence. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's it's the story that's behind it, and and the the um, I was going to say the world to come. That's not quite right. And and the sacrifice, right, for the for the sake of of all of humanity, that that uh, that crucifixion made possible. Right? Exactly. Like, what do you focus on in the narrative? You know, uh, like in the Bible, like it's been a while since I've read the Gospels, but from what I recall, although they talk about, you know, the nails being driven into his wrists or whatever, um, it's not, there's not a ton of detail about. Well, hands. Hands, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, well, that, yeah, so that's the one of the criticisms is if physiologically your hands couldn't support your body. Oh, is that okay? So they say hands in the Bible, but it was actually wrists in practice, right? Or that, I... that's what they're saying would have to be in the wrists, yeah. not in the hands, but yeah. But so regardless, so, okay. Yeah. Of course the Bible is bullshit. We all know that, but uh, the, just the, just the narrative itself, they don't go into microscopic granular detail really from what I recall about the, you know, the goriness or the sort of physical reality of the crucifixion. There's there's a little bit about it to make you, you know, make sure you understand that this was an execution, but nothing that would correlate to, for example, what uh, Mel Gibson puts on screen in The Passion of the Christ. You'd have to go to other historical sources to find that level of detail. Point I want to make is just that uh, the how you construct or how anyone constructs a narrative is... Uh, it's a, it's perhaps most significantly a process of selection and deselection, right? So what becomes part of the story and what is left out or what is highlighted and what is minimized. So in this case, the 
story of Christ. Yeah, it's profoundly violent, but that stuff's kind of minimized in service of elevating the sort of the more theological components or whatever. And this then for me connects back with everything we were talking about earlier towards the beginning of this discussion about how we live our lives as works of art. This is something maybe that I should have mentioned earlier, but I didn't really think about it until now, which is that um, if, if we take ourselves to be uh, and in fact are autonomous persons, the, the roots of that word, and I think the, the practice of that way of being is it's bound up in authorship, right? Self-authorship, self-legislation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And insofar as we tell ourselves and others, but most importantly ourselves, a story of our lives, that process of selection, of remembering and forgetting and prioritizing and deprioritizing and emphasizing and minimizing and blah, 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 all of that, I, I would argue, is an artistic process that we can become better or worse at. This for me, as you know, goes all the way back at least to my undergraduate thesis and is influenced in significant part by Nietzsche's philosophy of history, uh, but also especially Hayden White's book, uh, Meta History, which although postmodern and therefore not to your liking, <laughs> uh, I think that text is like criminally underread and underappreciated because he explains a lot of what I was just describing in great detail about the way that narratization itself is, well, really an art in the way that I was just describing, although I don't think he uses the word art, but that process of selection and the way that events can be construed either as tragedy or farce, same one in the same events, you know, depending on how you craft the narrative. Um, and then the linkage, the final point that I'll make before I spiral into complete incoherence is the linkage between what I just mentioned regarding Hayden White's thoughts on narratizing and then uh, Julian James's work on consciousness, where for him, the operation of consciousness is almost, um, I wouldn't say exclusively, but almost exclusively about that process of narratization. He calls it the narratizing self, right? So all of that is to say that's one, that, that would be a centerpiece of my argument if I were to write this down about why I think living one's life is, is a work of art. Yeah. Well, that wasn't incoherent. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I think we're back where, where we were <clears throat> earlier. <clears throat> this is an idea about <clears throat> uh, how living is a work of art. I just don't see it. <laughs> Even in the face of what I just said, how can you not accept at least that part of it? Well, I, I, I accept that what you described is, in fact, what we do. Okay. And I accept <laughs> that uh, the introduction of self-awareness 
into the process of narrating your life, of assembling your life, reviewing your life, are all important elements. And I can see that the, the attempt, so I guess here's what it comes down to for me. If you are self-reflectively examining your life, looking at the narrative structure that you're putting together about your life, looking at how you narrate and then exhibit that life that you think not you Rory but you person <laughs> you think that you are you are in the process of, of living artfully okay then having done that you can say to yourself I'm involved in the art of living because I am self-reflectively creating a narration, putting these aspects of my life into what I hope is an integral piece uh, where parts fit together, where someone could have a picture of me that would be a reflection of who I, I am authentically. Okay, but ultimately, the judgment of whether that is art has to rest both with you, the creator, and the observer, somebody not you. <laughs> yeah. Now, if it, but you could say, and I think this is true of Emily Dickinson, and I think it's true of, of Kafka. Mm. They wrote not to have their art judged, not to have their art even looked at. Kafka's instructions were, when I'm dead, destroy everything in the drawer, right? Burn Get it. rid of it. Yeah. yeah, and Emily Dickinson, I don't think, ever published anything. I think maybe she did initially, but I think it was under an assumed name, right? They wouldn't publish it as a woman. Yeah, but anyway, something like that. It wasn't published, most yeah. of her stuff, yeah. So if that, let's say that's the, both of those cases are true. They don't care to have other people look at this, look at their art. They don't care. Mm. They're doing it because they are either compelled to write or they, they choose to write, or it's a combination of the two things. Um, I think I can live with this idea that all of us, all of us who are, <laughs> this could sound so pompous. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say all of us who are self-reflectively putting, examining our lives and putting things together are artists. I agree with you. You can't, there are plenty of people who are walking, sleepwalking through life, who are unaware of what they're doing or why they're doing it. And that can be, I, I suppose that could be authentic, but it couldn't be art. Right. That, it could have one element, the authenticity element, and maybe even the, no, it couldn't have, I don't think it, it could have integrity. And it certainly <laughs> couldn't have the self-awareness. But, uh, so I think we're coming around to something, we're coming around to agreement mm. about the art of living. Uh, I think you might, you and I might agree on the following. <laughs> Whether you're aware of it or you're unaware, you can't avoid the art of living because living is an art. 
so so you're pr- putting it and whenever you put it out there it can be judged as whether it fulfills whatever you think the art art criteria are so it's it's unavoidable it's, it's un- well or yes, it's, un- it's unavoidable <laughs> to be no that's not true i was going to say it's unavoidable <laughs> to be to be an artist in creating your life mm. now you sound like me right but that's not true right because it, yeah. the the important element you introduced early on in the conversation was the element of self awareness right if you, if you are not self aware then you can't be an artist right you're something more like a bee building or a spider weaving a web you know it's like uh, I, I mean, maybe a human would perceive that as art, but from the perspective of the spider, is it really done with an artistic self-awareness or is it just instinct? Maybe that's not a good example. It just popped to mind as you were speaking. Like, Well, it's popped to mind because the spider and Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the moonlight between the trees. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, where, where were you going with that? You're saying... No, I was just I was just saying how I think we're coming to an agreement. Oh yeah, uh, about how you could live an artful life, and so your life. This is back to Instagram. <laughs> wow, yeah. back to Instagram. The art gallery of the future. <laughs> you, you are self-reflectively posting things that you do or see, experience things that you experience whether it's self-generated, like working out, or it's something you see when walking around the city, um, you are self-reflectively posting those as a reflection of your authentic life. Yes. And so these are pieces that someone, as I said, also said early on, if they were cataloging it, might be able to get a sense of what, of what your life was like. I and think for so. Th- and for them... They're, they could have an appreciation for what you are doing in the same way they have an appreciation for looking at a painting or a building or reading a poem. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty much it. I think like when I, if I'm posting things uh, that are sort of just a casual, organic part of my life, like I'm actually working out that day and I post a video of it, or I'm actually walking past the Empire State Building and I post a picture of it or whatever. I'm doing those, I'm posting those things. Those are authentic, right? Right. And, but it's up to the viewer to then recognize them as, or construe them into a work of art. Uh, right. You know, right? Because right. I'm not necessarily doing it as a project. There's not a, there's not real intentionality beyond a, a, a very incomplete presentation of the life that I already live, which right. I do strive to live as a work of art. So it's right. just right. like a yeah, it's, it's just an, it's a, an expression. It, it yeah. is always it is always an expression of who you are at the moment. Exactly. Exactly. So, right. And so that, that, because you have, you have examined it with self-awareness, you understand that the elements you are presenting have authenticity and integrity to them. Otherwise you wouldn't put them up there. Right. Now, someone looking at it from the outside may not see that or may judge it differently, 
but that has nothing right. to do with you right? <laughs> exactly. right. as the artist, right? yes. as the artist. Yep. That, that now is that person's view of your art, quotation mark, your art. Right. Uh, okay. So I was going to say something about the, like when you're working out. Yeah. You know, that, that might for some reason completely disappear from Instagram, you may never post another one of those. And that doesn't right. mean that it's not something you still do. It is for whatever reason, not something that you want to post. Exactly. It, it doesn't fall away as part of your authentic self, as, as an expression of your authentic self. Uh, but that, because you're not trying to <laughs> convey to the public who you are in toto. Right. You are simply presenting a snapshot. And if you want to gather the snapshots and do an album and review and, and try to piece together the the art of Rory, <laughs> fine. You could do that, but that's not that's not what you're why you're doing it. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think you get it. At least somebody gets it. Uh, yeah, um, well, I could, yeah. I see it. I see it. What's missing, of course. Okay, so there is there is a beauty to the authenticity. Mm. I'm not saying there's an authenticity to the beauty. I'm saying there's a beauty to the authenticity. Right. Uh, but people have to be aware of that. <laughs> right. Right. Now, they may come to it on their own, which I think would be a real stretch. <laughs> right. But because it's it's not anything that you are advertising, right? You're not... You're, you're not putting it, you're not hanging these things in a, in a museum to have people say, take a look at this. What do you think? You're saying, no, this is just an expression of me. Whether it gets in a museum, I don't care. I could care less. I'm just right. doing the art. This and is fact, just, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and in fact, you can do no other. I mean, that, you, right. Okay. So. Yes. I'm just was, moving through the world. It's no different than if you saw me at the gym or saw me on the street in Manhattan, right? It's just a window into that for people yeah. at a distance, you know? But, and there are going to be elements of that that will have, that will impact people. Right. And it may be the impact of what the hell is this, <laughs> which is okay. Here's right. Clouseau rolling on the bed, batting a ball. Right. What? What? <laughs> now, as an individual piece, they may find that beautiful. Now, but I don't know that they would have they would have the awareness then to try to connect it to the person who's taking the video uh, as anything but Rory's pet. There's something else happening here because you're not posting it just because it's Clouseau batting a ball. Right. And that's that's your pet. There's something reflective in that about your life. Yes. Okay. I wanted to go somewhere with the authenticity thing. Oh, I know what it was. <laughs> um What's interesting about this idea is that it brings me to Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle defined eudaimonia, often pronounced eudaimonia, as uh, meaning a, a good daemon, a good soul, a good spirit, meaning happiness. But you could only judge your happiness not only at the end of your life, but after the end of your life. Right, as a complete life. As a complete life, a whole life lived well, Aristotle right. said. And that's 
the only time at which somebody could ever judge your art. Right. Now you, on the other hand, that's a different story as the artist, but, but (laughs) a person looking can't take these snapshots, even if you were to take them all and put them in an album, as any way of being able to judge your whole life lived well or your whole life at all. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, I'm glad you make that connection, but I, because I agree. It's like it, it, uh, the approach that I take, uh, in posting many of those things and really all of them insofar as they have this kind of authenticity to them, some with more or less intentionality or, um, thought about how the viewers may perceive it, um, or, or receive it. Um, nevertheless, it's like those, they're, they're not, the purpose is not for any individual post. It's for the way that the flow and the total collection uh, sort of reflects what I was saying earlier, the, the art project that is my life, right? It's not, in other words, I'm not, the posts are not posted for their own sake. They are pieces of a larger right. entity, right? Right. And, and like you say, some things may rise or fall. And in fact, there have been times, I mean, there have been times where I've uh, deactivated my social media altogether. I've deactivated Instagram for, for years at a time. Um, or sometimes I'll post workout stuff every day for a month, or sometimes I'll post it once a week for a year or sometimes, you know, just so these things rise and fall uh, and they for various reasons, reflect on my life, which is the real piece, art piece that's being put on display, but only through a keyhole, right? Like it's yeah. just a little tiny. sliver. Yeah. 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 So, but I mean, you know, like, I don't think it's really anything, maybe the, the use of social media and the intent, the sort of self-awareness that I may have about it is unusual in the sense of being new. But I think that that's a really time-worn approach to philosophical communication, right? Like even just thinking of the Republic, like Socrates has this great line that I'm kind of forgetting right now, where he says, you know, the, the philosopher puts others by something like by putting his own life in order, the philosopher put, puts others lives in order. In other words, it's like, there's a contagiousness to living one's life uh, and offering oneself for observation and perhaps emulation or inspiration or rejection. (laughs) Uh, and, And just, sort of serving serving that social function in a way that maybe few others do does that make any sense you get like like you're living your life philosophically in that way for others if you are a philosopher and i'm going to distinguish philosophers from sophists you you have to be in public right 
And once you are in public, then you live your authentic life as an example to others, not because you're trying to be an example, but because you are an example. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you're not using your training as Thrasymachus did in order to, to win the argument. That's right. not what you're, that's not why you're doing it. No, it's missing the point. Yeah. You're, you're in a, you're in a quest, but it, but can you do philosophy in private? <laughs> so I'm thinking about what happens at the end of the Republic when Ur travels to the afterlife and discovers how people are reborn, right? that they are able to choose the life they will live. And uh, the first, you know, some people scrambled after great riches or glory in battle, uh, or they wanted to be tyrants, right? They, the first, I can't remember the first one to be a tyrant. I forget the name, but he chooses poorly. <laughs> chooses poorly. But the person who, who, and people are scrambling. They want to go first. They we want to get the best choices. And right. I think it's Odysseus is just hanging back and chooses. <laughs> last. <laughs> last and chooses the, the quiet life. Yeah. Farmer's life or something. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. yeah I can't remember how he described it. The quiet life and the, maybe it's a farmer. Uh, now a philosopher I don't think is going to have a quiet life. Mm. I don't know that a philosopher can have a quiet life. <laughs> as, the, as Plato understood it. Right. Well, it depends on how successful the philosopher is at capturing people's attention also. Sort of I don't, where you were going maybe with thinking about philosophy in private. Well, I, yeah, I, but I don't know that. I mean, Socrates, it seems, it strikes me. I don't think of Socrates as wandering around Athens trying to trying to get people's attention. No. He was just trying to find the truth. And so it just turned out that he was mesmerizing, captivating, but just doing it the way he had to do it, his living his authentic life. Right. He does it and and he doesn't go in search of an audience. The audience is in search of him actually whether yeah. they realize it or not yeah they come to him yeah the people that, yeah that's right the people who follow are people who are cannot cannot do otherwise exactly and it reminds me also of what he says in the republic when he's talking about uh you know basically he's elaborating on the idea of the philosopher king at this point if i recall correctly and he makes an analogy to the doctor and he's like it's not for the doctor to go around knocking on doors <laughs> looking for sick sick people as right. the sick people come knock on the doctor's door right you know yeah. it's the same thing i think and yeah uh, because we're because it's a different kind of medicine exactly but like, you need to put a sign out so to speak you know and the extent to which you make yourself visible to the public makes it easier for them to find you. Right. So a doctor who's hidden away or up on a mountaintop, for example, like Zarathustra is not a very much good to anyone, right. maybe other than himself. And even then, even then, right. Uh, sure. <laughs> Open question. Yeah. That's one of the challenges. Somebody proposed had these, uh, 
these sannyasins, these monks living in caves in the Himalayas or Himalayas, however it's pronounced. <laughs> and they are in caves for 20 or 30 years meditating, living their pri private lives. Well, it, it might be a lot more difficult for them to attain these, these transcendental states if they were living on Fifth Avenue, if they're living in <laughs> Manhattan where you right. are where there are this distractions and there's tumult and there's you know noise and all kinds of stuff going on. It might be much more difficult to integrate yourself. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's like the philosopher. Can, okay, you can ruminate in private, but are you, are you really doing philosophy? Because if it means a love of wisdom, mm. seems to me you got to put that to the test. You got to get into the crucible. You got to figure <laughs> out, yeah. And which is what Socrates did, wandered around quizzing people. Exactly. Diogenes as well in his own way. <laughs> his own and, strange way. Yeah. But, you but know, that, even that's more so perhaps. Artful life. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he definitely, he lived in the agro, right? You know, in a freaking barrel doing all kinds of crazy shit. But it doesn't, you know, but I mean, there, I think there are meaningful connections or ways of thinking like about publicity and quote unquote living a public life versus a private one you know it's maybe trite but also i think true that the internet and social media are the public square of our times certainly a public square or 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 a civic sphere or whatever and i think like perhaps most significantly uh there can be there's a huge potential audience right uh Whereas Socrates was only serving as Pied Piper for 20 people in Athens at any given time, you know, if, if there's a way to have the same effect in this virtual space or spaces, the potential reach is enormous. Um, but that raises many questions, including can it even be done? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Can it even be done? And how, if it can, you know. The, Socrates appears to be unique. Right? So it's only one Socrates, but <laughs> right. I mean, in, in how he lived his life, uh, how he conducted himself, which was no other than than how he had to live his life. I mean, I think of Plato as also being uh, a commendable human being. But Socrates was in pursuit of truth and did it the, the way he knew best, which was to do it in Athens. Okay, now you've got the internet and it's the world now. It's not just Athens. It's not a city state. It's the entire world. Right. The dilemma is that you have, I mean, so, so for Socrates, Socrates was the first I think this is right. The first philosopher who introduced us to the ideas of self-examination, cultural examination, moral examination. Before it was so much of philosophy was involved in the cosmos. Right. And he's now looking internally inside and looking at the values of society. Uh, so the people's experiences in Athens were so much more limited once you when you introduce so much more limited from the perspective of looking today mm. at the internet mm -hmm. which goes 
covers the entire globe. So now the search for truth has to combat what we, what we see by all our sense of evidence and reason to be misinformation and misrepresentation. Right. So that has to be overcome. That has to be combated before you can even get going. <laughs> right. Like the, the um, overwhelming quantity of information, basically. That's what I think that's what you're getting at, right? Well, like the I'm people not just, in- no, I'm going even stronger than that. You have, you, you, yeah, you, you have that overwhelming level of information, mm. but add on to that misinformation. Right, right. So it isn't a matter of just building on information. It's now trying to then sort that out from misinformation. Right. And propaganda and all. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got that whole game going on. So yes, you've heard this before that the internet <laughs> provides us with, with a with a ton of information. We just right. don't know know what to do with it because we lack wisdom. We may have some knowledge, but we lack the wisdom of how to how to separate <laughs> wheat wheat from chaff, how to <laughs> discriminate, differentiate. Yeah. So this and, is what we've talked about before about teaching mm. skills of critical thinking. You've got to provide people with the tools. So the so the art of living today, if it's going to involve integrity, mm. which for me is another way another uh, way of looking at the element of truth. Right. If you're going to live with integrity, being consistent within yourself about the things you see outside of yourself. Then you you have to not just have, you know, know what to do with information, but somehow get over the misinformation. Yes. And yeah, not be captured by it. And then we haven't even talked about the, what information means qualitatively. Right. The, the level of trivia. uh, And, but you know, what's trivial to me may not be trivial to you. Oh, I don't know. It seems (laughs) trivial. No, I, I agree. I mean, these are all like very real and very immediate, like pressing problems and concerns for us as individuals and as a society and as a species. And I also, I tend to view a lot of what you were just saying, like along generational lines as well, because I do think because the internet and then social media are both new and have catalyzed or contributed to the catalyzation of rapid social changes on a scale perhaps un- unprecedented, like makes the printing press, you know, look like it's moving in slow motion, you know, the internet does. Yeah. So it's like that, it's like this whole, the screw is turning on a very specific group of people which is basically my generation and the generation after mine. Yeah. You know, and, and the so, generation after that. Exactly, but then but they I think face maybe a different problem where they don't know they have no inkling of a pre-internet world, right? They're born into the matrix so to speak, whereas I was caught under a net and plugged in, you know, uh at about 12 years old and have been there ever since. Right. Yeah. You know? I see. Yeah. So, so they call them like digital natives, right? Like that's, those are the future generations and really they're here now. I mean, like my niece and nephew, for example, they're only five, six, seven, eight years old. Um, but they are part of this. And I see the way that they are affected by uh, 
both negatively and positively their exposure to the internet. Um, and also kids that are older than them. Right. So anyway, point being is like, there's a very, if we think of the things you were talking about as posing something like, a, or creating something like a crisis for us as a society, as a species, I think it's, it's absolutely essential to recognize and emphasize that that crisis is falling first and hardest on the shoulders of an identifiable and discrete group of people that can be lumped generationally. And for that reason, I think also like there's a sense of urgency in, in how that group reacts to this crisis or these crises. I mean, obviously this connects with like climate change and, you know, my interests and things we've talked about many times, but just abstractly, like how are we going to adapt ourselves long-term or maybe we won't to the introduction of, of this communications technology at a variety of different levels, including, you know, individual psychological development for digital natives, like I was saying, and then also the types of societies and interpersonal interactions that they have as a result later in life. It's going to be very interesting, I think, well, to say the least. Given that we are about to close yes. on 2021 and herald in a new year, 2022, <laughs> I want to give a uh, I want to I want to provide a directive uh. for you in particular and maybe for some of our listeners who fall in the same generation as you or even a generation before. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I wrote about this, I can't remember where, but I said that we have both we have an emergency and we have urgency. Mm -hmm. The urgency is that we have to save the planet and the species. I'm not entirely sure about the species, but we <laughs> ought to save the planet. The emergency is, <clears throat> is that we live in, a, in a, a nuclear world and climate change is taking its toll. We've already seen it unfolding over the past several years. And that is an urgent problem. But the emergency is that we could at any moment destroy both the planet and the species with nuclear weapons. Okay, so here, here's the directive. The directive is you and people like you, political activists, philosophers, political theorists, people concerned about the planet and the species, need to stop addressing <clears throat> anybody who's 40 or older <clears throat> seriously yeah fuck them yeah you need a movement you need a, a political movement that involves the young mm. and you and, and the, the problem isn't that they fail to recognize how dire our situation is it's that they don't see any way of doing anything other than taking personal steps, I'm not going to eat meat or I'm not going to wear leather 
right? Or I'm not going to shop at Walmart. Okay. And that has not even incremental effect. Now, if it becomes a, a collective action problem and you have a movement mm-hmm. where you get people to boycott, that could have tremendous impact. But what? But I think that our my generation, the baby boomers and the generation what's right before me, I mean, what's right after me. X, I guess. X. Forget it. Yeah. We, we cannot be appealed to. We're too tied <laughs> into the the rapacious system. Exactly. Worldwide. I mean, I think there are sympathetic members of those yeah, generations but that, like yourself. But, and but, but, but that can't be the movement. I agree. Yeah. I think it's got to be a youth movement and it's got to be a movement where you show people that they can, if they act collectively, mm. they can galvanize groups into taking political action. I know. I have not entirely given up on the institutions. <laughs> I think they can be saved, but they have to be overwhelmed. Mm. Right. So we talked about the way other 96 members of the Progressive Caucus, and we're not really sure how many of them are really progressives. <laughs> right. But anyone, to... any number of people could have served Manchin's role, you know, yeah. in killing and, yeah. you know, so yeah. But, but it has to be, it has to be a youth movement. And you have to, I'm serious about this. I think you have to figure out how you appeal to the youth to, to mobilize them. I, politically. I, I agree. And like that, I mean, like part, my experience with Extinction Rebellion has given me some insights on that. And of course, like Greta, Greta Thunberg was influential in motivating young people and raising awareness among young people and older people but none of those things from rebellion not the uh, school strikes or fridays for future that greta does or any of the other climate movements or any political movement in the united states that i can think of including black lives matter um none of that has done what you're just saying is essential which is to create uh, to create a movement that actually results in political transformation, right? That yeah. either takes control of institutions or replaces institutions. Yeah. And, and One you of know those why. two things has to happen. Yeah. But you know why? Yeah. Because we haven't, because every movement, whether it's Occupy, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, whether it's Greta Thunberg, it doesn't matter what it is. They've peter out. Yeah. They, they, right. Yes. I mean, they, they, they operate well, and for they're also crushed in many cases. Occupy, for example, Extinction Rebellion, too. Well, OK, Occupy wasn't crushed. They were driven <laughs> out from places where they were. But th- th- nobody said they couldn't mobilize elsewhere. Sure, sure. But, but, but still, they point, did face, I, uh, you know, violence from the state and they're like, going they faced to face opposition. Yeah, that that's unavoidable. Sure. There, there's going to there's going to be forceful opposition in all of its all of its forms. But where I was headed with this is to say, you need to learn a lesson from the right. Yeah. And that is you have to keep people angry, but they're angry for the good. But you <laughs> no. have to keep them angry. I know, this is righteous right anger. Is. Yes, exactly. You need righteous anger because people, they get caught up in other stuff and they have to be reminded and it has to be renewed. <laughs> I know. Uh, they, I just don't have, know how to do it. I mean, you're saying we need to figure this out and I agree with you. And I, it's like, I've been trying to figure it out. To, to, to learn a lesson from the right. How does the right <laughs> do it? How do they keep their people fearful and angry all the they time? Lie. They lie. Well, yes, but can you do it by telling the truth? Can you I do it by know. pointing out to them, 
what our situation is. And I think you can with the younger generation. This is why yeah. my generation and Generation X are, 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 are lost. Yes. I think you can with the young. I think you can explain to them that all the ways that have been already been used. First, how bad the situation is, and they already know that. Right. And you look at you look at their their uh, value uh, hierarchies, and they fall in line with the very things that we, that you and I think are are important. Right. Right. Social justice, uh, end of discrimination, um, helping immigration, environment, not, environment, not cutting ourselves off by artificial borders and boundaries. Right. So right. I, I just think that it's, I think the tools are there. Mm. <laughs> I can't I keep coming back to this because it's such a great example, but it's so horrible. The right has demonstrated how you can pe- keep people, uh, uh, I don't want to say keep people angry, but it is righteous anger, you, how you keep them energized. Yes. If they begin to see that there are some inroads made, there is some progress made. And there have been, for example, progressive mayors elected, progressive members of city councils. That, that's happening more and more. But mm. if you can just draw on those, if you had a medium, a media, a media outlet, the equivalent of Fox, that that built on, yeah, you know, well, the right is going to call it righteous anger. I would say anger for the good. Right. I th- I th- think there's something there, but anyway, that's that's my that's my your call to new, arms. <laughs> my hope for the new year, yeah, a call yes. to arms, uh, and of course it's it's perfect because I bow out. I don't have to do anything. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> I'm not part of the solution. You can cheerlead, you know. I, you yeah, can. <laughs> I, can, I can hold a sign. Yeah, go Rory. Exactly. Let's go Rory be, instead of let's go Brandon. Oh, be, let's God. go Rory. I know another example. Yeah, it's like. They they really didn't progress beyond like high school gym class. <laughs> like these no, right wingers. Yeah. Well, because if, it's so it's so easy to get people angry about. Yeah, as you said, you can just lie to them. Right. But those techniques about keeping people energized. Uh, how do you motivate people to act? These are all the things that you're interested in. I agree, I'm, and I'm just I, like, saying focus on the young. I also agree with that completely, and I think your point about um, you know, it's not that they don't understand. The, the problem is that they understand all too well. Yeah. And they, they also, know it's coming. yeah, they know it's, they know what's happening. They know it's coming. And moreover, they know that I think many of them know that like the established, you know, channels for change are not going to work. <laughs> like they've certainly like, you know, millennials, for example, people in my generation, like we've lived through like multiple economic recessions or crashes 9-11 happened when we were like 10 to 12, 13 years old. I watched it happen on live TV in, cl- in my classroom. And like, so our, in, in some, I mean, in the most significant ways, I think our lives have been like a series of catastrophes, <laughs> social, yeah. social catastrophes. So it's like, you know, yeah. this is not unknown to us. It's very known. And the problem, like you're saying, is like, is mobilizing. Is it anger? Can we tap into anger? I think, yes, the anger is there and could be very galvanizing. Part of the problem is like for the right wingers, certainly there must be lessons learned from the way that they were able to literally invade the capital of the United States, (laughs) right? And like violently (laughs) Uh, and, and like with permission, 
right from the president of the United States himself. So like that's that has been so sort of brushed aside, I think, in the public consciousness and discourse and it's just forgotten almost already. But like how, how incredibly historically significant that was. And for the left or, you know, whatever we might call the left or just the youth to like look at that and and see a mirror image for themselves, you know, to seize power, to assert themselves. I guess the problem for me comes back to the fact that when you have leaders that arise in that sphere, they tend to get either smeared or assassinated, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, it doesn't go too well in the long run for them, whether it's, you know, or they get neutralized like Bernie. I would, I would suggest that Bernie uh, was neutralized in some significant ways. Um, yeah. But you know, Bernie, Bernie knew what was going on. Yeah. I mean, Bernie tried to become a member of one of the two dominant political parties. And he had to know that was that was a high risk because they were going to do everything they could as a corporate entity to (laughs) shut him down, to make sure he didn't win. And that's that's pretty much what happened. Leaving aside aside his own campaign mistakes. Right. Which I think he did make. Yeah. But, you know, he left the Democratic Party as soon as it was over because he wasn't really a Democrat. And that was part of what they used against him. But but exactly. I, I, I think for me, this idea about a movement can't look at the political institutions. Mm. It has to look at media. Yeah. That your, your generation and the generations behind you are far more media savvy than the boomers and the Xers. Right. But, but I think that's where it lies. How is it that Twitter arose, mm. right? How is it that Instagram arose? And either you capture them in some way or something like it, and you, but you have a focus to it that maybe like a Facebook that takes its, its broadcasting mm. seriously. Right, right. It puts some limitations on the kind of crap that it's willing to put out there because you're not doing it just for money. <laughs> Right. You know, it's it's not about the number of clicks. It's about pursuing truth. It's it's philosophia. I yes, but then the problem that I would immediately be concerned with regarding something like that is that even if that happens, and maybe there are corners of the internet where that's already the case, in small ways, you know, uh, places like this podcast itself, but in larger ways as well, where people are trying to, you know, engage authentically, speak honestly, uh, pursue or push for the good, et cetera, et cetera. But how can they compete with the overwhelming power of a corporate entity like Facebook? In other words, it's like the signal to noise ratio is insurmountable already. Yeah, but Facebook Facebook didn't exist 20 years ago. Twitter didn't exist, what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago? Oh, so you want to suggest something sort of almost completely new could come, could arise. and uh, Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm suggesting. But, but there hasn't been a focus on mm. any social media to pursue the truth, right? to be honest, to say we're going to speak authentically, honestly, in pursuit of truth. That's, that's our mission. Our mission isn't MSNBC to offset whatever Fox is doing, have our own talking heads, Right. Right? It's, it's not to be uh, Facebook or Twitter 
we have a design <clears throat> and we have a purpose and here's what it is. Now, of course, all you need to do is, and I think this is, this is possible. I read about this, I don't know how long ago it was, a while ago, about this new generation of philanthropists who mm. are young people who have inherited tremendous amounts of wealth and want to do something with it. We'll find those people and say, <laughs> you know, each of you give us $10 million. We'll, we'll build a $100 million media conglomerate yeah. devoted to authenticity, integrity, pursuit of truth. It's very, it's actually interesting now that I understand what you're driving at a little more. And I, I mean, we're bumping up against our time yeah. limits here. So, but I'll just mention this before we conclude is um, I was thinking the other day about just a way of conceptualizing some of the ideas that I'm interested in and, and all that kind of stuff. And like the, if we, if we take seriously the need for the need to organize collective action across the species in a more or less simultaneous fashion and the sort of way of doing that rests maybe not totally but possibly totally definitely significantly on ideas the sort and sort of insights produced by the understanding of ideas like the recognition of climate change as an existent as an immediate existential threat for example true recognition of that um then is there a way that we could think of the internet as a mechanism for activating this collective consciousness and then i started thinking about like sort of dividing the internet into groups almost like plato does with in the republic with the calipolis so in other words can we imagine a scenario where say philosophers organize on the internet as a class as a group and say okay we are going to actively engage with the other users either on the internet more generally or on the kind of platform you were just suggesting is there can we collectively within this small group attempt to get the ball rolling among the larger group in a way that inspires the collective action that we need it, like to wake to wake up the species so to speak does that make sense? So like the internet could be, it's because of its tremendous communicative power, it could be the means by which a dedicated group acting in a concerted fashion could spur collective action, perhaps even without necessarily needing the people who are acting to fully understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I guess I'm, I was also thinking about this in the sense of like for the philosopher returning to the cave in the allegory of the cave and trying to convince or 
or trying to get other people to leave the cave. There's, a, there's more than one way that that could be done, right? One way is dragging them up, unshackling them and just dragging them up by force, perhaps against their will, or at least um, with some resistance. Another way might be actually manipulating the puppets that are casting the shadows in such a way that the people awaken and they think that they've awoken on their own. Do you see what I'm saying? So, in, so could the philosophers in that sense, could a group that I'm loosely calling philosophers engage with the internet in a unified front analogously to how we could imagine a group of philosophers going back into the cave in Plato's allegory of the cave, pushing out the puppeteers and saying, these are our puppets now, motherfuckers. And we're going to use these puppets to wake the prisoners up, not to keep them asleep. Yeah, that that's something. That's I've exactly what I'm. About. That's exactly what I'm proposing. Okay, good. I thought so. I just I so was... <laughs> Marx has this wonderful line. I'm pretty sure it's in the Communist Manifesto, and if that's the case, then it's Marx and Engels, where he said that the capitalists will produce their own grave diggers. Right, and that's what I'm suggesting that you use, you use the system against itself. So in, in, in Marxism, Marx says that the problem with the capitalist is the capitalist needs workers. Those workers have to meet certain criteria. In order to meet that criteria, the workers have to be trained. They have to be trained to work in factories, to respond to whistles. They have to be able to do the tasks before them. And, and that all requires a certain level of discipline and training. Well, once they're then thrown out of work by the capitalists, because the whole point of capitalism is to maximize profit, and you do that by cutting wages or firing workers, then the workers want to do something with all this training and discipline they've received. And they do it by mobilizing themselves politically to topple the system, the very system that trained them. Right. So right. The capitalists produce their own <laughs> grave diggers. Okay. What yeah. I'm saying is, I, and I mean this sincerely, if you can create a template where everybody you know would agree that this is what we need to do for the sake of the planet and for the sake of the species, and that would be how do we promote human flourishing? Well, we mm. know how, to, I think we know how to do it. <laughs> right. I think we can understand what a good life is for people, starting at the very basic level, the lowest Maslowian level. Mm. And meet the needs all the way up. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Okay. But if you can come up with a template like that, mm. that describes human flourishing and the, and the salvation of a planet, then I think where, how you capture the system is to find, <laughs> this is my own, my own view, and you may disagree with it because I think it, it flies in the face of some of the things you think that a, a a counter-political, counter-cultural political movement should be doing. Mm. I think you need to find philanthropists who will finance a multimedia conglomerate mm. to take down all the others. Now, the, the trick is, and this is also going into Marx, but that it's for later episodes. The trick is not to become a, a not to become a subject of the very corporate system that you're trying to topple. Right. That that's the danger. But I think if you if you've got the template, as you were saying, if you understand what the goal is to get people out of the cave, mm. 
then that can be enough. And, uh, but you need the philanthropist to finance the multimedia conglomerate <laughs> that will serve humanity. If, I mean, it's already built in. The, inter, the internet's already the, 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 uh, the structure you need. It, it's the, uh, it's the, almost like the consciousness of the planet. Right. Or it could be at least. And it could be. So what, It's mostly unconscious right yeah, now. Yes, so what I we're think. saying is exactly, yeah. let's, how do we raise that? We raise right. it by the same way you and I have talked about raising any individual up through levels. You do, right? We right. Know, we know the developmental sequence. Okay, right. so Just do it thing. collectively, basically. Do it collectively, right. <laughs> yeah. But if you and that's have where... something that people can, can identify with, respond mm. to, see and hear, have, have ideas reinforced, have the values reinforced. I think it can be done. But again, I come back to my point. It's not for my generation. My generation's useless at this point, right? right? We've done You're shuffling off the mortal coil, not fast enough, <laughs> right? I mean, it's right. Not fast enough. Biden and the, those, those jokers meet at the G26 or whatever the fuck that meeting was Top called. 26. Yeah. And yeah. what has happened? Zip. Same we're as the, the previous 25. Yeah, we're pouring out more carbon into the atmosphere than ever before. Nothing is slowing down. Right. Nothing's changing. We got a little blip here. Oh, by the way, you know, renewable energies have now surpassed coal and their efficiency. <laughs> yes, fine. That's nothing in comparison right. to what needs to be done. So no. that's, my, that's my spiel for the I'm end of 2021 you. and the beginning of 2022. And the burden falls on you, pal, because you are, uh, <laughs> you are an artist. You are a self-aware person living an artful life, and it better, by God, have some pretty strong political elements to it. <laughs> I try. I try. I know you do, and I commend you for it. Thank you. Well, I suppose on that note, we'll conclude. Thank you to our uh, many listeners. <laughs> and Yes. Keep uh, the we, faith. Stay with us. Exactly. You'll get, a, you'll get a nugget worthwhile somewhere along the way. Yeah, just play us on triple speed. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah, 3.5. Exactly. And I suppose, uh, yeah, have a great new year, everyone. And we'll see you in future encounters in 2022. Look forward to it.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. 